going to take our Bibles and go for a Bible study to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Living in the last days. I think for, uh, for us as we walk through the, the study of 1 Peter, and we're continually seeing Peter's concept and talking about suffering and the, the movement and how we are supposed to face suffering, some of the reasons he's given through chapters 2 and 3 for a testimony to those without, and that as they see us go through the suffering, and we face those difficulties, seeing how we handle them, and then seeing from that the, the questions that others may have for us, and being prepared in chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, to give them an answer of the hope that is within us. And we continue to live righteously, seeing that the one who has suffered, Jesus Christ, is our example as he wraps up chapter 3. And then even last week as we, we finished up, Peter started talking about that there's going to be a judgment, that all of us as humans face the, the, the reality of death, and that after that he will judge the quick, the dead, the alive, and those who are dead. And there is this dynamic of judgment that Peter then uses, and he, he springboards into this next section. Now, chapters, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, really what it does is it sort of uh, closes off the rest of the book. Uh, the, the, the body of the book. Everything he's been talking about, he's sort of bringing it to a summation, and then we're going to hit the, the last part, his closing of, of the book. So he's, he's closing out the body of his letter. And we know the story of Chicken Little, okay, where Chicken Little, you know, the sky is falling, and he, he's running around, and, you know, because something fell, an acorn in the, in the real story, not the Disney version, but the, the real story, he, you know, an acorn fell from a squirrel, but he didn't realize it was a squirrel. He thought the sky was falling. So he's running around. He gets Foxy Loxy, and he gets the, the goose, Lucy Goosey, and all of them. And they're running to the king, and everybody's in panic and frenzy because the world is coming to an end. And when they start putting it all together, they realize that, that that's not the case. But I think sometimes we fall into an end times theology idea that, okay, if we can just, you know, fill in the charts, and if we can just understand when everything is going to take place, then we, we've, got the, we've got the concept of end times. But Peter doesn't park there. He's, he's not Paul. He's not John. Paul and John, they, they give us all of our, our, a lot of our end times theology. Whereas Peter, he's just going to talk about the end times. He's, he does not want us to see us get so frantic like Chicken Little, running around in panic that we become absolutely no good to anybody because we know that the end times are coming. Well, we understand that. We have been through as a church many times an end time series where we understand the signs of the time. We understand what is happening. But if, if all we ever do is understand those things, that, that's no good to us. I've always appreciated when pastor's done those series that he brings it back and says, so what does that mean for us? It's not just, hey, I can, I can map out a chart. And so what Peter is going to do is he's going to use this very simple idea in verses 5 and 6 of there is a judgment, and he's going to use it as a springboard to give a very succinct end time statement. I mean, look, look what he says, verse, verse uh, 7, but the end of all things is at hand. There's Peter's end time theology. He's like, guess what? We're here. And if Peter's thinking that, he's saying the end of all things, he's reminding us that all of the major redemptive things that have happened, they're, they're in God's plan, they've occurred. The, the, ministry of Jesus Christ, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, the, the Spirit coming at Pentecost, 
All of those things have happened. The church, we are in the church age. We know we're there. And the next thing that's going to come, we know the rapture, the second coming of Christ. We know that that's it. Well, Peter is looking and he's just very, he's not trying to give us a a full-blown end times theology. He wants us to just understand very clearly the end is at hand. We are living in the last day. And if Peter believed he was living in the last days, how much more? I mean, and we, we know those things. We've, we've heard it. We've understood the, the, the rapid pace of technology and information, the, the, rampant, the rampant evil that is in the world. We see all of that around us. And when we go through scriptures, I don't think I need to convince most people here tonight that we are living in the last days. We are there. And so Peter says, well, what, what good is that? You know, when we talk about in the New Testament, the history of the, of the New Testament, historically, it talks about the imminent return of Christ that Christ is coming back at any moment. And the believers in the New Testament continually believe that we are in the end of history, of, of God's redemptive history. Now we know there will be ultimate history, but we are living in a time when if we are honest with the scriptures, we are honest with our culture, we are living in the last days of this world. That Christ is going to return soon, and we, we hope we pray it will be soon that we would be able to be ushered into the presence of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to no longer have to deal with the sin, to no longer have to deal with the struggles that we face, to no longer have to deal with the, the, the rampant evil and wickedness and the wars and the rumors of wars and everything that's going on around the world, to not have to face that, but to be able to be ushered into heaven. We long for that. We hope for it. But Peter says, it does us no good to just be standing around hoping and looking into the sky. We are not here to just, Peter, he's not going to elaborate on when. He's not going to tell us where. He's not even going to tell us how it's all going to occur. He just looks and says, the end is at hand. Because he wants us to understand there's this idea of the imminent return of Christ. All the things that, that are there are, are present. And so now what are we as believers supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? And he he just gives us a few verses that says, in light of the fact that we are living in the end times, how are we supposed to live? What are we supposed to do? So he's telling us that we ought to govern our lives by the reality that since the end of the world is near, then we need to live in light of God's judgment. We need to be prepared. What's interesting is that he's not going to give us a list of vices of the bad things in the next couple verses that we shouldn't be doing. I remember growing up and in some of the churches that that we attended growing up, it was always this idea of don't be doing sin because you don't want to be doing that sin when Jesus returns. No, granted, biblically you can prove that and talk about that, but that's not where Peter's gonna park. Peter's gonna look and say, because the end is at hand and we want to be a testimony to others, but we also want to be an encouragement to the believers who are going to be facing the difficulties, the persecutions, the the sufferings. He's saying you and I need to live a certain way. And he's going to give us some positives because Peter's Peter's take is because Christ is returning to do these things. These are what we need to be doing as believers. And he lays it out and says, here's what you need to do. Here's what you and I, for this body of believers... And for other believers as well, what are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to be living? And he shifts the focus. For the last two or three chapters, Peter's been talking about our testimony to others. 
to those outside when they see our suffering, when we, they see how we handle it. But now he's going to shift that. Look what he says, verse, verse 8. Be fervent in charity among yourselves. Verse 9, to one another. Verse 10, to one another. These next verses are about our calling to each other. As the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, how am I supposed to relate to you? How are you supposed to relate to each other? And how are we supposed to function together as a body of believers living in the last days? When the potential of persecution arises, when the sufferings of life occur, how are we supposed to interact with one another? Someone once asked Martin Luther, if you knew that this was the last day, what, what would you do? And his, uh, his, his response was interesting. He said, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. And what he meant by that he later talked about was that he just wanted to live every single day in light of it being the last day, that the end is here. And so he would go on and he would live that day saying, this is what I would do. And so he, he brings to light a truth for us that says, if we believe we are in the end days, that the end of the, the time is at hand, then we should be living every single day, today, tomorrow, the next, every day this week, in light of that. Not thinking, oh, it'll, it'll happen down the road. So how are we to be living in these last days? What does, what does Peter remind us? What does he say? And they're not, they're not going to be profound truths, and yet they're truths that we can slack on. There was challenges to me personally this week as I'm reading through, and I'm like, all right, you got to do better in this. You got to improve in that area. Because this is what we are called to be doing as believers. Look how he starts. He says, To be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The idea of sober here means clear-minded. To watch means to be self-controlled. So we are to be individuals who are sober-minded, clearly thinking, self-controlled, ready and prepared. And, And what's interesting about how he talks about it is prayer is not a verb here, that you need to be praying. He's assuming that we are praying, but he says your prayers should be controlled. They ought to be sober, they are sober-minded. They ought to be clear-minded. They ought to be watchful. So that as we're praying, we're not consuming it upon our own lusts. That as we're praying, we're not just praying trite and trivial prayers, but we are consciously thinking through the situations at hand. We are wrestling through with a clear and sober mind when we get those emails. And we understand the struggles that some of our missionaries may be going through. Or we see the struggles that our, our, our friends in the community are going through or in our body of believers are going through. We need to be fervently praying for them. And in, a, in, a, in an understanding way. Not in just a general, try it, okay, pray for so-and-so. But to say, oh wait, this is a real fact that they're going through. They're going through cancer and it's a hardship for them. But you know what? Not only for them, but for their spouse. And Lord, I want to pray for their kids too and the the difficulty that it must be knowing that their father or their mother may be in a situation where they're passing away. And to to clearly and soberly think through the prayer that we have. The knowledge of the end should compel us as believers to be praying intelligently, to be thinking about the situations, to evaluate them and to pray maturely and correctly, not just for our own whims, our own wishes, our own hopes and desires, but to be looking and understanding that as the end times approach, that as suffering occurs, that as difficulties arise, 
we need to be pouring out our hearts for those believers who are going through difficult times, like we've been doing for Ukraine, like we've been doing for other believers who are persecuted. But even as it happens in our body, we hear of maybe somebody who's lost a job because of their stand for Christ. How do we pray for them? Or do we just go, well, I hope they get another job. Okay, great. But to be thinking clearly and soberly. And the, the idea that this, this, this idea of clearly and soberly, I think has another dynamic to it. That you think about, if, if Peter stood up here today, or Paul, or John, like one of, the, one of the big apostles, stood up here and says, the end of the world is at hand. Are we all, I mean, it's one thing if I say it 2,000 years later. But if you're listening to Peter for the first time, he says, the end of the world is at hand. Is there a little bit of franticness in your life all of a sudden? Is there a little bit of, I'm going to run around like, a, you know, the chicken with the head cut off, so to speak, and you're all over the place, and there's nerves because you're like, when's this going to happen? What's going to happen? And Peter's looking at them and saying, whoa, 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 slow down. God is in control. Don't be panicked and so fearful that you, you can't do anything. But he says, be clear-minded, be sober, and watch unto prayer. Be involved in that prayer. Our prayers should be mindful. They should be focused. They should be sensible and alert. Thinking it to be used as prayer for asking God to act and move in the time that still remains. Do I pray that way? To look and to say, okay, Lord, this, this Ukraine thing, use it. Use it for your glory. I don't understand it, Lord, and I know there are believers who are suffering. And I know there are people who are going through, and they're losing family, and they are, they're, they're having family members who they know they may never see again, but God... Can you somehow use this for your glory? And Lord, would you please bring this to bring people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and pouring our hearts out with intention for one another. That when we see each other going through the battles, be praying specifically and earnestly to take those Wednesday night prayer sheets that are sent out and to truly pray through them, to take the directory and to start praying through and maybe getting a new church directory. I know we like it all digital and it's great to have the digital directory, but maybe it's nice to have one where you can write in prayer requests that as they come in from the, from the emails, you're starting to put those prayer requests next to the individuals who the battle is happening, the struggles in life are going through and, and praying succinctly and fervently. Peter's looking and saying, in the end times, we need to be praying for each other, for strength, for faith, that we not walk away from the faith that we're praying for one another to be earnest and honest when it's going to be so easy to just go by the wayside and give in, but to be praying earnestly for the struggles, not to be flippant about our prayers, not just to try and get done in 30 seconds, but to be honest, sober-minded, watchful, clearly thinking about the prayers. One person wrote it this way, the realization that God is bringing history to a close should provoke believers to depend on him. And this dependence is shown in prayer. For in prayer, believers recognize that any good that occurs in this world is due to God's grace. Lord, to be gracious, to improve my prayer life, to be more direct and intentional, to be thinking more clearly about my brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through hard times. Some who are not, but I still need to be lifting them up. We need to be fervently praying for one another, that we are guarded, that God is protecting, that God is encouraging, and that his grace rains down upon our 
church and upon each individual in our church. Peter says, pray. Be involved in prayer. And again, not a radical concept, but it's one that if you're like me, it can easily slip to the side. It can easily go and say, oh, I've got so much to do. And yet the first thing that Peter says, living in the end times, that you and I need to be doing is praying. And praying with intentionality. We are to be alert and self-controlled so that we can be devoted to prayer. Being wise, being intelligent as we go through life. Then he goes on to verse 8. Verse number 8, he says, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourself. We know what the word charity is, that idea of love. We are to have a constant love. Not just the, okay, I love everybody, but this is a fervency. Uh, I am going to look out for you idea for the believers. Love is to be central in our life as Christians. We are to love one another. We are apt to grow cold in our love. So we have to continually stoke the fires of love so that it is displayed to others. Why is it easy to grow cold in love? Because for me, I'm selfish. And I don't think I'm the only one. It is very difficult for me to be selfless and to think of others. And so it's easy for us to grow cold because we just want what we want. We want to have our peace. We want our safety. We want our security. So when we're contemplating how to spend our last few days here on earth, now, again, in the scope of eternity, our last few days, maybe 20 years, it may be 20 more days. We do not know. We need to remind ourselves that we need to prioritize love for one another. Love is such a generic term, though, at times, isn't it? Like, oh, we just need to love each other. But let's remember about love. The goal of agape love, which is the word that's used here, is always to seek the good of others. It is me being and having your best interest at heart. It is you having each other's best interest at heart, which means then that the evidence of agape love, it is not shown in my words, but it is shown in my actions. It's not just something I say, but it is what I do. Love does. Love has action to it. That if I know somebody needs some help, I need to go help them. Not to just call and say, hey, can someone else do it? But I need to take the desire within all realms of possibility. I need to be looking out for your best interest to, to help, maybe with moving something. To help and say, I can encourage you and write you a note. To look and to say, how can I show you love? Maybe it's by helping to drive your your, your mother or your father who needs to go to a doctor's appointment when we get those emails. Rather than saying somebody else will do it, I, I, Val ought to get flooded with 15 or 20 phone calls when those things come out. Because we ought to be looking and saying, yes, it will be an inconvenience to a degree because the extent of agape love is sacrifice. That's what Christ demonstrated. When, when Peter launches off this whole thing, he's talking about the suffering of Christ and the extent of Christ's agape love for us was that he sacrificed himself for us. And so when we look at love and demonstrating love for one another, I need to be looking out for the good of our body. And remember, this is, this is Peter is talking about us. He's not talking about our community right now. He is talking about us. That we need to be demonstrating to each other sacrificial love that shows not as just words, but demonstrating to each other that we care. It may be sitting and taking an extra 10 or 15 minutes at the end of a service 
to listen to the struggles and then praying with that fellow believer because they're hurting. And when they go home, they have no one else to talk to or they only have a few people to talk to and they've talked to them and they feel like they're just burdening them so much more and they just need someone else to talk to and share and to have someone have that listening ear. And you're like, but that's cutting into my time. But it's a sacrifice. It's what we need to do. And Peter says, he takes it to the next level. He, he looks and he says, we are to have love for one another. And then he says, for charity or love covers the multitude of sins. The reason love should be pursued is seen in the second half of this verse. And honestly, isn't it one of the most difficult times to show somebody love when they've hurt you, when they've inconvenienced you, when you felt that they have done you wrong or done you dirty? And it's really hard when it's somebody that you're sitting across the, the aisle from here and you're having a difficult time forgiving them. And yet Peter says we need to be demonstrating. We, we should not be getting caught up in some of the petty little rifts that, that divide churches or divide believers that they won't cross across the, the aisles here because they don't want to have to talk to so-and-so. And Peter looks and says, love covers a multitude of sins. Now that does not mean that love covers and atones for our own sin. It doesn't mean that if I show love, I can, I can cover my sins. We know that we cannot atone for our own sins. When we as believers lavish love on, on one another, the sins and offenses that sometimes we see as really big can be overlooked. They can be forgiven and say, you know what? They, it was wrong, but I'm going to in Christian love forgive them and I'm not going to hold that to their account. I'm going to let that one go. That's hard because I want to be right and I want them to admit straight to my face that they were wrong and I was right and you need to come to me and bow down and beg forgiveness because I'm the one who's right. How does that, how does that demonstrate? It's selfish. I need to be looking and saying that the idea here of covering has the implications of forgiveness. It's important to note though, and when we talk about this, love does not ignore the reality of personal sin. It's not saying, hey, go out and do whatever you want, and you know what? My love for you will just cover your sin. Hey, no problem, because love covers a multitude of sins. That's not where Peter's, Peter's addressing. Love does not justify nor condone sin. In fact, love is going to graciously talk about. It will confront sin in an appropriate and loving manner. When I have to go and confront someone about sin, when you need to go and confront someone about sin, and, and we should be doing this, that's the first step in the, the process of church recovery, church discipline. The goal of church discipline is not to just shame somebody. The goal is to bring the, the sin to light so that we may recover a brother or sister to Jesus Christ and let them see that, that God's grace is sufficient even for their, their sinfulness. To bring them back. Love covers the multitude of sins. It will confront sin. And we are required, we are called to be doing that. The first step, it's like, if you know there is a sin, it's not call up Pastor Art or Pastor Burgraff and say, go talk to that person. It's not, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? That's not love. Love shows that I will go. It's going to be hard. It's going to take sacrifice because I'm going to be nervous and there's going to be difficulty and I'm going to be, I'm going to be wrenched in my gut to talk to you. But I go to you out of love because I want to see you recovered. I want to see you right with God. 
And so I go, I don't, I don't condone the sin, I don't justify, that's not where he's going. But it is very important to demonstrate the willingness to forgive and to move forward. That when they look at you and say, you're right, I've wronged you. Or you're right, I am living in sin. To be willing to look at them and say, I forgive you. And not to hold that to their account. But that we act like Christ, who when forgiveness is done, he removes it. He puts it as far as he yes, we may remember it. Yes, it may be present for a while, but when, the, when Satan uses it and says, hey, you remember what they did? No, I'm going to choose to willingly not hold that to their account because I have forgiven them. That is love. And love will cover that multitude of sins, those struggles, those, those battles that come against us. And we have to, because if we allow petty, petty differences or we allow these small sins that, that fester, the arguments because we had a family difficulty and everybody's arguing internally and we, we can't work through that, that fractures the body. And we need to more and more as the time, the end times approach, be united in holiness, be united in righteousness to move forward. The community that loves one another is able to forgive one another and more rapidly move through the minor issues that are, that are there. I love what this, this author, Wayne Grudem, he wrote this. He said, where love abounds in the fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound. And he, he's not talking about just letting sin slide. He writes a number of books that talk very hard, harshly about dealing with church sin. But he looks and says, we need to be demonstrating love. Love toward one another, not looking at every action and every word with suspicion, oh, they might be not, you know. But to have love, because love hopes all things. Love endures. Love is patient. Love is kind. To work through and say, okay, maybe it's just my brother or sister struggling in Christ right now and in their, 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 follow, their walk with the Lord. And I need to come alongside out of brotherly love and encourage them and talk with them and maybe point out some of the sin. But doing that as a body, that is what we commit to. When we become a member of this church, it is a commitment to one another that we uphold each other, that we encourage each other, that we provoke one another to love and to good works, that we are encouraging each other that way. We are to work at loving one another deeply because doing so in stressful times is difficult. There, I, I'm sorry for the long quotes tonight, but there were just some of them that were, I thought were really good. How can I act lovingly to a person who has hurt me? There are people in the church with whom we have disagreements. How do we respond lovingly to these people? Do we ignore them so as to avoid conflict? Do we gossip about them so as to strengthen our ego and damage their reputation? Do we pray against them and their ambitions or do we seek them out so as to create reconciliation? Do we pray for them and their ambitions? Do we speak kindly to them and of them? When love is preeminent among Christian virtues, we behave differently. And Peter's calling us to that in the end times, to be praying for one another, to be loving one another. We are to love one another with great effort to be doing, to be going out of our way. And he says, well, look at how love in action works. He, he goes on to the next verse and he says, they use hospitality one of another without grudging. Hospitality is an important and tangible expression of our love for one another. 
it provokes fellowship. It provokes conversation. It provides the opportunities of encouragement. And so we need to be having hospitality. Now, it doesn't necessarily always mean that you need to have people in your home, although that is the, the original context. That's, that's what was happening in Bible times. And that really by the ultimate definition of hospitality is what it is, that you're inviting people in and that you're being hospitable and helping them and spending that time. But it could be that you take time with another believer and you just go out for coffee and you sit and you talk. That you go out for breakfast with another believer and you just sit and you encourage one another. Or maybe you read a few passages of scripture. You find out where each other is at and you do that. Maybe you just go for a drive because you're gonna, you and, you and your friend like to, to ride bike, <coughs> excuse me, and you go, for, you go for a ride, you stop for a little bit, you talk for a while, you encourage one another, you spend time, it's spending that, that mutual time with one another. There's lots of different ways to be hospitable to others. It's, part of it is facilitating opportunities. We had a, this week, uh, so one of our young adults just called some, just a couple of his friends and said, hey, do you wanna do this? And he organized everything and created an environment for hospitality to take place. That was great because it didn't, he can't, it was like, I can't necessarily invite everybody to my parents' house, I could, but he's like, why not just do this? Can, is that, I said, yeah, that's a great idea. And it's facilitating opportunities that we need to be doing. It's not looking and just saying, all right, there, you know, Pastor John just has to do all the teen stuff. Maybe you could facilitate with some of the other teens. You know, you're, you have teens, you, you have some of them over and provide an opportunity for them to interact, to have hospitality. Like some of the, I know some of our widows, they get together on a regular basis just to meet and to fellowship. I love that because they don't expect everybody else to do it. They say, hey, if we want to be encouraged one of another, we're going to do that. And they, they make that effort to do that. You, some of you have uh, young ad- um, uh, single adults over to your house. You do that. Some of you have opportunities where you, you get a couple people from your Sunday school class. And we're just going to get together and encourage one another. Peter, Peter looks very openly and says, you and I, not an option here, we are to use hospitality one to another. He's commanding us. He's saying in these last times, when times are getting difficult and it can feel very lonely for believers who all during the week, they're sitting in the factory and they don't have a single other believer around them, they need to be refreshed. Invite them over. Do so. It doesn't have to be an elaborate spread, folks. It could be a pot of coffee. It could be tea. It doesn't have to be a five-course meal. It could be popcorn and just sitting around it. It could be s'mores at the campfire. But there are a number of people in here who would just love to have somebody. Give them a call and say, hey, want to get together? Just to meet. There are a number of, there are a number of different, and it's, it's not just, you know, one or two. Like, honestly, part of my heart, you, you know where it is, part of my heart is for our singles. They, they, they're lonely. And it's not because something's wrong with them or anything like that. They're, they, they look and say, hey, guess what? I eat alone at every meal too. And they're like, does anybody care? If we're gonna show love, that's another group to show love to. We, we, we have opportunities and they abound. And Peter says, in these days, let's show hospitality one to another. Use hospitality one to another. And look, look what he says. It's the mark of a Christian community. 
it was crucial for Christians in that day for the Christian mission to survive and go on that they, be, that they afford one another because Paul would travel or another Christian would travel to another area and they maybe couldn't afford lodging or they couldn't afford. And so Christians would open up their homes. They would willingly open up their homes and provide room and board for the, the, the Christians who were traveling through. It was necessary for the church at that time to meet in the homes. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if we couldn't meet here anymore? Government said, nope, we're shutting you down. And now we have to find five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten homes to meet in. And how would you feel, wives, if your husband said, guess what? This week, we've got 50 people coming for church. <laughs> My wife would look at me and go, I love you. Right? Yeah. But that's what they would have to do. To, for the, the early church that survived, the people had to be hospitable. They had to open up their homes and provide opportunities for people. And, and it, it, think about it. Isn't it true? The arrival of guests, can it be inconvenient? I mean, yeah. Even if you're planning for it, it still can be. The feeding of guests, could it become costly? Yes. Even the kindest of guests can overstay their welcome. My wife says amen when it's 2.30 in the morning and I still have college students there and she's like, are they ever going home? I'm like, no, it's okay. But did you, did you catch at the missions conference that one of our, one of our uh, missionaries talked about in their culture? That whenever somebody shows up at their door, they have to let them in. And then what did their wife have to do? They had to feed them as well. 11.30 in the evening. I know it's a different culture. I get it. But I'm not going to be too chipper either. I'm going to be like, Jesus loves you, okay, and he loves me. But, but we're required to have that hospitable nature. So Peter reminds us here that even believers, we, ha we have a higher calling to hospitality because the non-believers were doing this in Bible times too. But Peter talks about our attitude in hospitality. He's my favorite dwarf. Out of all the dwarves, grumpy is the best. because I, His hard attitude and mine were like... I, 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 I resonate with grumpy. But Peter says, hey, when you're having people over, what's your heart attitude? Are you grumbling, murmuring the repeated words over and over again, words of complaint? It can grow wearisome hosting guests, but we are exhorted to not cave into the temptation or begrudge our love that is shown through hospitality to others. And yet, if you're like me, we can find lots of excuses not to have people over. I live too far away. My house isn't big enough. My house is never clean enough. My Look for opportunities to create fellowship with others. To have those moments. And, and it doesn't have to be 30 or 40 or 50 people. Pick one person out. Give, give us a call and say, is there anybody who could use some encouragement? I would like to have somebody over. Look for, those, look for those opportunities. Christians are to provide opportunities without complaining, without whining about the time and the expense that is invested. Because love is costly. Love is sacrificial. But I need to take the time to do that. I need to take time out of my... And the most precious thing that I have, and I think most of you outside of our family, is our time. And it's like, ugh. It takes time. 
But you know what? It's good for us. And you walk away encouraged. In a time when we feel like we're always suffering, when we feel beaten and downtrodden, Peter says, you're living in the end times? Be hospitable and do it with a good heart attitude. And then he says, he goes on in the the last two verses here, he's going to talk about ministering and serving. Ministering one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And he's going to talk about our spiritual gifts that are, that are present here. Look what he says. And every man, that hath re- every man hath received the gift. Even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as, to, as of the ability which God gives. So Peter is going to look here and says... We are to intensely serve one another. Every believer is capable of serving and ministering in the body of Christ. Every single one. Because God has given to every person who is saved a spiritual gift and an ability to do that. Every believer has received it, a spiritual gift from God. We, we know that there's other passages of Scripture that talk about it. These gifts are given to us directly from the Holy Spirit at the Holy Spirit's discretion and in the amounts that the Holy Spirit has decided. Some people are more spiritually gifted than others, but all of us have at least one. Now, we don't go on the the journeys of trying to figure out taking all the tests and trying to figure out where we're at, but rather what Peter drives at, and Peter doesn't even give us the full list of all these things. He says we are to use our gift with humility, not arrogantly, not saying, hey, look at me, I can speak. Aren't I really great? Well, you can't speak real well, so I must be much better than you because I'm so good. That's not how we're supposed to take our gifts. We're supposed to use the gifts that God has given to us in humility to minister one to another. The gifting of of the Spirit is experienced by every believer to some degree at the moment of salvation for the benefit of the body of Christ. Why did God give you a spiritual gift? It is not for your own use to just be able to show yourself glorious. If you are a believer, God has gifted you, according to Peter here, to minister to one another in the body of Christ. That is not an option. Now, we make it an option. We say, you know what, I'll let other people do the ministry. I'm not, I, I don't have time. I don't, I don't know what my gift is. I get involved. Start doing and allow the spirit to, to, to persuade him to move and for you to be having other individuals saying, you know what, you are really gifted in this. You're, you're a great teacher. You know, if, if Pastor Tony walks up and says, you know what, you're a really good teacher and I really like to see, you know, teaching kids. Oh no, I, I'm not good at teaching kids. If he recognizes that, if another brother in Christ or sister in Christ recognizes that, allow the Spirit to, to push you and to move you into those, uh, that use. We are to be, to be used by God to use it. These gifts are a result of God's grace. Notice what he says. He says that we are to be stewards of the manifold grace of God. It is something, your giftedness is something that God has given to you out of his sheer grace to say, you know what? I know you better than you do. I'm going to gift you with the gift of hospitality or with evangelism or with speaking or with preaching or with these different, different gifts or these abilities that he gives to you. And he says, I'm going to give them to you 
out of my grace to you for the purpose of ministering to one another. Not to be held back, not to be shelled up, but to be used. Believers cannot boast about the gifts because that would contradict what they're designed for and how they've been given. It is God's gracious gift. I mean, we talk about God's grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, not of works so that you cannot what? Boast. Because when something is graciously given to you, I have no room to boast in it because I haven't done it. So God has graciously given you a gift not to elevate yourself, but to humbly serve the people down the aisle from you, across in the pew. That's where they're, the amount that differs between believers, gifts are not for believers to congratulate themselves. They are to be used to serve others. Now, look, look at how he talks about it here. To po- the point of spiritual gifts are given to serve and to help one another, to strengthen others in the face. Believers hold these gifts in trust since they are God's gift. Did you catch what he says there in verse 10? I, I personally never caught it before. I thought it was really interesting. We are to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. A steward is something, someone that has been entrusted with something, maybe something precious, and they are to care for it and to use it. Remember the parable of the talents and the stewards and, and the ones who were investing and made more, they, they received more. God has graciously entrusted to you this spiritual gift to be used in the body of Christ to serve one another, to strengthen one another in faith. And your job and my job is to be a good steward of that. Not to bundle it up and hide it away, but to invest it, to use it, to be actively serving one another in love, to strengthen you because I want to see you strengthened in the faith. I want to see you encouraged in Christ. And so therefore, I am going to use what God has, in, has gifted and entrusted to me to do my best to humbly serve you. Not to say, hey, look at me, I'm such a great guy. That would be the wrong use of the gift. Have you ever had your kids, you give them a gift, they destroy it, they misuse it, and you're like, that was not what the gift was intended for. You know, you buy them, you buy them one thing and your, your four-year-old sees it as a hammer. Everything is a hammer to a four-year-old guy, boy. I mean, it just becomes that. And you're like, that's not what it's for. Don't do, no. And then it's gone. You're like, you know how much I paid for that? Do you ever wonder if God looks at how we use our gifts sometimes or don't use our gifts? And he's like, that's not what it's intended for. That's not the heart attitude. You, You may be wise, but don't do it in your own strength. You may have this gift. I've given you the ability to teach. I've given you the ability to have compassion and to talk with people and encourage them. I've given you this ability to just be, to have the ability to see and show mercy to people. And yet you've held it in. You don't even talk to people anymore. You're withholding that precious gift that I've given to you. It's almost as if we misuse or malign the gift that God has given to us. Spiritual gifts are not fundamentally a privilege. They're a responsibility because you and I are stewards of the gracious gifts that God has given to us. And so we are to be faithful to God with what he has bestowed to us. Interesting point, verse 10, you catch it? As every man has received his gift, even so minister 
It's the, it, the word that's used here, it's the, the diakonos, the idea we get with our deacons, the serving, the ministering to one another. But you go through the New Testament scriptures and you look for that word, it has ideas of going and visiting people in jail. It's used at times for showing hospitality. It's used at times for just a general humble service to other people. That's what we are to be using this for. And he says, okay, so Peter goes a little bit further. And he says, if you're going to be using your gifts, let's, let's clarify something. Maybe you're gifted in those areas of speech. He's going to say, let's talk about it. And he breaks them down into two general categories. He's not, again, just like the end time statement where he says, it's at hand. Peter's not like Paul, where Paul is going to give us all the different gifts and, you know, the different perspectives on all of it and, and how to use the different ones. Peter just says, if you have a gift that is involved with speaking, then let you, make sure that you are speaking the oracles of God. Now, if you're like me, you're like, what is an oracle? Is that some mythological thing that goes back to the Greeks and whatever? The, the oracles are, what he's talking about here is basically if you're teaching, if you're admonishing, if you're counseling, you're, you're encouraging one another through the scriptures, then you speak the very words of God. Not the cunning words of man's wisdom, but rather I need to make sure that I am preaching what God's word says, not what art thinks. That's, that's inappropriate because if I'm using my gift of speech and teaching to you, then I need to make sure that I don't say what the, I say what the Bible says. I don't want to add to it. I don't want to take away from it. I have a responsibility to say, this is what God, you're teaching. That's what you're responsible to do. That's what the idea, the oracles are God's words that have been given to his people. The, it talked about, the Old Testament prophets would often talk about this is an oracle of God. It is a word that God has given to him. That's not saying though, that when I stand up here and preach that the words I'm preaching is new revelation from God. It's not saying that. It's just saying that as I preach, or as you teach, or as you encourage a friend through the scriptures, or as you are counseling an individual who's going through a hard time, and you're using your spiritual giftedness in that way to encourage the body, make sure that what you're telling them is biblical. And how do we do that? We get into the Word of God. We memorize the Word of God. We know the Word of God that we do that. How easy is it to think that we can assist others with our own wisdom? But those who are entrusted with the ministry of speaking should be careful to speak God's word to be faithful to the gospel. So he, he reminds us, use, use, your, use your gifts for one another to encourage and to, to minister to one another. But he also says, if you're going to use your gift of service, he breaks them speaking and serving. And he says they're basically falling under those two categories. Whatever your giftedness is. He says, if you're going to... Uh, serve, then what does he say? Let him that do it as the ability which God gives. So he says that I should not be relying upon my own wisdom, strength, competence, endurance. I need to be humbly going to God and saying, God, give me strength. I, I, I was rebuked by this to think of the numbers of times that I did things with the teens and didn't teach this principle. To say, all right, guys, it's, you know, we're on a missions trip. Let's start doing it. And we would just go right into a project. Rather than first saying, wait, this is us using our talents and abilities and our giftedness to serve God. Let's start with prayer. And let's finish with prayer. Even, even something like a work day coming up in a couple weeks. 
We're going to need people. Some of you have the gift of service. You have the abilities to do that. We're going to need people to come in and do all these things around the church building to, to spruce it up and to clean it up. But to look and to say, wait, let's start first with a word of prayer. To say, Lord, we need your strength. We need your endurance. We want your wisdom in the decisions we have to make, your safety, because this is a ministry of service to you and to each other. And as we finish up, to, to spend time maybe in prayer with one another. To have those opportunities to say, hey, this is, this is God's service to God, but I need to do it in his, his strength. Because God is the one who provides the strength. It says, in the ability which God gives. So I need to be doing my ministry. If whatever it is serving you, I need to be doing it through prayer and through God's strength. Not through my own wisdom. Not through my own intelligence. Not through my own strength, but saying, God, please, give me the strength and the endurance to do this. Because God is the one who provides the strength. And really what happens is, Peter says, the one who provides the strength, he's the one who should be praised. Think about it. If, if your boss brought in donuts for you at work, and all the donuts are there, and you eat a donut, who do you think? Who do you praise? It's the boss, right? Because the boss, the boss brought them in. He provided that for you. And so Peter looks and says, God is the one who's given you strength. God is the one who's helped you. That, why did he do this? That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He looks and he's telling us that we as Christians are to do these things. Those gifts are to be exercised in such a way that they reflect their divine origin and their divine purpose. That they came from God and God's purpose for us using them is to serve one another. To be ministering in this body, to find ways to serve each other. Whether it's through teaching, teaching the kids, whether it is through service, acts of service, whether it is through writing cards to encourage because you're just an individual who has that encouraging. Maybe you have the resources and the ability to be very hospitable. And so this summer you commit to having lots of different people over to your house to provide fellowship. But whenever we are doing those things, doing them for the glory of God, because we do it for him to be praised, not for us to be praised, because it is God's gracious gift to us that in all things he may receive the glory. Whenever we use our gifts correctly, God is glorified and Christ receives the power, the glory, the honor, the praise. The goal of the Christian faith is that glory belongs to God, not to us. And so if we're seeking to glorify God in these end times, in these last days, we need to be living a certain way. We need to be praying for each other. We need to be loving one another. We need to show hospitality one to another. And we need to use our giftedness to strengthen one another. Why? Because this gives God and Christ the glory and honor that are due them. Peter says we're living in those times. And yet, I look through that checklist. Some of those things I'm not good at sometimes. How can we do better? How can you do better? I fear that all too often we as believers become like the townspeople in the story of the boy who cried wolf. Remember that? You know, the, there's, there's the wolf, the wolf, the sheep, they're in danger, and the sheep weren't, you know, there was no danger. There was no danger, but what happened when the wolves were really there? The townspeople didn't do what? 
didn't believe him. Man, we've heard this a whole bunch. And I fear too often that in our lives, we hear about end times, we see that it says very clearly in Scripture that the end is at hand, and yet we do nothing about it. We've heard it so much. Peter said it 2,000 years ago. Preachers have been saying it for two millennia, that the end is at hand. Yeah, we've heard that before. And then the truth of that theology has no impact on our lives. So we need to, because the end is near, we need to live and love others. We need to minister to one another with our spiritual gifts. And as we serve one another, God will be praised. We are about the glory of God. Then let's take some of these simple truths over the next weeks and months and choose one or two and start making them practical in your life. Start living them out day by day. Choose how you can use your giftedness. And it changes how you can use it sometimes. As you get older, you might not be able to do some of the things that you did before, but still use your giftedness for the body. Look to serve one another. Look to minister in our body and look to show love to one another. And we really need to be people of prayer, uplifting and encouraging and wisely praying for the glory of our God to shine forth in our community, but even in the midst of our body when people are hurting. So Father God, I pray that you would help us to look for these practical ways to live for you.